without that bipartisan basis of focus, comedy, and frankly, respect, there is not going to be the kind of headway that we need. Welcome to Kickback. My name is Niels Kubis, and the voice you just heard is that of Casey Michel. Buckle up for a conversation that deals with Casey's new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. The interview also touches on the FinCEN files and Donald Trump. It is slightly longer than usual, running 75 minutes, but we think it's worth it, especially because this is the last episode of the year. We will be back January 10th. Now, we hope you enjoy the episode. Greetings, this is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Casey Michelle. Uh, Casey is a journalist who has worked uh, considerably on issues pertaining to illicit financial flows, money laundering, kleptocracy, and anti-kleptocracy, and is the author, most recently, of the book American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, a provocative title to be sure. Uh, Casey, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Matthew, thanks so much for, for being here. Been a longtime listener. Very happy to join you for the first time today. So I, I want to spend most of our conversation talking about the book because I do think it's a very important, meaningful contribution. A lot of our listeners are going to be interested in it. But before we get there, can you start out by telling me and our listeners a little bit about your own background? Um, and in particular, what led you to focus on this set of topics related to illicit finance, money laundering, kleptocracy, and so forth? Yeah, sure. And certainly, Matthew, that's a question that I ask myself a little bit more frequently than I, I maybe ever anticipated these days, especially with the, with the book being out. You know, my, my professional training is as a journalist. I've worked as a journalist in the U.S. for however many years it's been now. I'm sure as listeners can tell from my accent, I am an American and have been working primarily in the United States, covering primarily uh, American affairs. But, but prior to my formal uh, career as a journalist, I actually worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, Kazakhstan. This was about a decade ago. I served as an English teacher in North Northern Kazakhstan. And that was my first time working and operating and living in a country overseen by what we would now describe as a kleptocratic regime. That is to say, it was overseen uh, up until uh, just recently by the uh, figure of Nursultan Nazarbayev. Uh, we, and Nazarbayev had crafted something of a, a generally traditional kleptocratic authoritarian leadership. He had been in power in Kazakhstan following the um, collapse of the Soviet Union. He had remained in power for years and years, and he had entrenched himself as one of the uh, local autocrats or authoritarian figures, or if you'd like to describe him this way, dictator. And he was in power for about three decades, only handing off the reins just recently to his successor, although he still controlled many of the levers of the state apparatus in the country. But while I was there, you know, it was fascinating for any number of reasons. You know, that, that goes without saying, obviously, an incredible country in and of itself. But one of the things that really caught my eye and caught my interest was some of the news reports coming out both prior to our arrival there as well as our time in Kazakhstan regarding the financial flows in and around the governing halls of Kazakhstan, and most especially how the ruling regime was moving and using its finances elsewhere. That is to say how it was generating outflows of financial sources, how it was moving, hiding, and in many ways, uh, as we would now describe, laundering the sources of its own wealth. This is, that is to say the wealth attached to this specific figure of President Nazarbayev himself, as well as his family, as well as his friends. And these were doing things like using and utilizing offshore financial vehicles in places like Switzerland and other Western jurisdictions 
using a range of, as we describe them now, Western enablers. These are PR figures. These are consultants. These are, in, in, in certain cases, like uh, uh, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, actual former political figures in the West itself, as well as the broader financial apparatus itself. It was one of those, again, kind of traditional kleptocratic, traditional illicit or offshoring financial networks. Certainly, it's a model we have seen reprised time and again in regime after regime around the world, using and utilizing, again, not these maybe traditional offshore havens that we imagine when we think of financial secrecy, places in the Caribbean, places perhaps in the South Pacific, but using these prominent Western jurisdictions, in this case, the United States of America. That was my kind of initial foray and entree into this part of the world, and it has simply snowballed from there. I was telling someone this the, the other day, uh, you know, the, the book itself is not dedicated to President Nazarbayev, but in many ways, he was the initial spark for my interest in this field. Why is it that these figures have turned time and again? Why have they been able to? Why have they chosen to? And why have they continued to uh, look to and utilize these Western, and in this case, American financial secrecy systems? How is it they've been so successful? What specific policy are we talking about beyond that what are the actual impacts in terms of policy on the ground ripples uh, a broader transnational financial architecture in and of itself so that's maybe a long-winded way of saying it was due to my time in the peace corps in kazakhstan that initially sparked me pushed me down this path and it's been a a decade quite unlike anything i suppose i was ever expecting well no, that's great it's great to hear i mean this often happens it starts it starts with one thing one spark as you say and now 10 years later it culminates yeah. Uh, that might not be the right word to use because that culmination <laughs> implies conclusion, but at least has sure. led to yeah. uh, the publication of, of this book. As I noted it when I introduced it, the title is, I think, deliberately provocative, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, it is, yes. uh, in, in case it's not clear, you're, you do not mean to imply, my, my understanding is, is that the United States of America is a kleptocracy, rather that the United States government is serving not the United States government, I should say, the, the United States as a country serving as a haven and to some se a sense a facilitator of, of kleptocrats around the world. The subtitle, though, is also somewhat provocative because you talk about how the United States created the greatest money laundering scheme in world history, which, which makes it sound like it was deliberate, like it was a deliberate act by the entity of the U.S. government. But I don't think that's quite what you mean either. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on, I don't want to, you have to try to summarize the entire book because much of the book is given over to telling the story, but can you summarize what you mean when you suggest in the subtitle, the United States created this global money laundering scheme? Who were the key decision makers? How, is, how did it happen? How much of it was intentional? How much of it was unforeseen exploitation by bad actors of regulatory loopholes? What, what was going on? How did this happen? Yeah, Matthew, that's a, that's actually that's an excellent question. I'll, I'll address some of the material in the book in and of itself. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Some of the the uh, certainly material on the title page is deliberately provocative insofar as we want to draw new audiences, new readers. I mean, this is really the thrust of the book in and of itself. Obviously, I've been working in this space as an investigative journalist for a number of years now. Obviously, Matthew, you've been working in this space as one of the leaders of this field for however many years it's been. You know, there is a cohort of figures, individuals, organizations, networks that are focused on this part of the world. But the thrust of my book, the reason that I wrote it was to get those who don't know the first thing about transnational money laundering, don't know the first thing about shell company incorporation or anonymous real estate purchases or anonymous private equity investments interested in how it is that these systems first emerged. And then beyond that, why should they care? What I like to say is I like to get uh, folks like my parents that don't know the first thing about transnational money laundering or frankly what it is I really do uh, interested in this part of the world.
So certainly the title and the subtitle are meant to grab the reader itself. But, you know, as you mentioned, Matthew, you're exactly right. This was not a single or singular, a momentary conscious decision from a sitting administration, from one sitting political figure, or even necessarily from any of the uh, executive, legislative, or judicial branches themselves to decide that sometime in the 1980s or sometime in the 1990s, or maybe even more recently, the United States should pursue offshoring as a form of political economy, should pursue offshoring services or as I described them, pro-kleptocracy services, as a means of income generation. What we're talking about are a series of decisions, of oversights, of failures, of ignorance in many cases, as to what these systems were actually doing, how these incentive structures were actually being implemented, and beyond that, what the actual implications uh, themselves are. So I'll, I'll just run through the three primary dynamics that I highlight in the book. Again, I'm not arguing, as you, as you mentioned, I'm not arguing that President Joe Biden is one of the greatest kleptocrats of his era. Certainly he emerges from the state of Delaware, the first president we've ever had, and we can talk about it in a little bit. But no, I am not arguing that the U.S. itself is a kleptocracy. When I use that term, certainly we can still ascribe that to certain regimes. Obviously kleptocracy literally meaning rule of things. Think of places like uh, Russia or, in this case, uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. When I'm talking about kleptocracy, I'm talking about the transnational financial architecture that incentivizes illicit or subterranean or suspect financial flows from source countries, source generations, source regimes into very often Western jurisdictions, in this case, the United States of America, where that money can be transformed into legitimate, licit, above board assets that can additionally no longer be traced to their uh, initial sources. So anyways, there are three primary uh, planks of development that I highlight in the book. The first is the role of American states, not the federal government itself, not folks in Washington, but America's federal structure, the actual polities, these subnational jurisdictions, these smaller states, especially places like Delaware, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nevada, states that don't enjoy as much uh, economic broad based uh, resources, natural resources, etc., that looked in the 1980s and the 1990s to creating the kind of financial incentive financial policies and regulatory oversight, or perhaps lack thereof, that would attract brand new emergent capital, much of it suspect, illicit, et cetera, from places like the post-Soviet region, post-communist region, post-colonial regions, again, think sub-Saharan Africa, uh, 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 South America, Southeast Asia, certainly Central Asia as well, incentivizing the inflows of that finance, no questions asked while providing all of the financial secrecy and privacy uh, protections therein. We can talk more about the, the, those structures in, in a moment if you'd like. That's one element is the specific role of American states. The other is actually back in terms of federal policy, specific policy loopholes, specific examples exemptions. Think back to 2001, 2002, the passage of the U.S. Patriot Act, obviously all kinds of concerns about civil liberties violations, but in many ways, the Patriot Act being one of the seminal moments in the U.S.'s broader fight against money laundering, obviously took a significant step toward cleaning up specifically the American banking sector, obviously requiring internal anti-money laundering protocols, filing of suspicious activity reports, criminalizing, working with the proceeds of foreign corruption. I will say, Matthew, just to interject, I'm sure you're more familiar with this period than I am, but in researching the book, reading about the American banking sector in the 1990s, and certainly prior to that, boy, it was like the Wild West back then. Anything kind of goes. It was remarkable to read about just how wide open the sector was. But then obviously the Patriot Act comes in, targets not only the banking sector, but a number of other American sectors, real estate, private investment vehicles, luxury goods providers, escrow agents, et cetera, a whole range of American industries with new anti-money laundering requirements. And yet... 
a year or two later, the Treasury Department issues exemptions for not the banking sector itself, but real estate, private investments, things like private equity and hedge funds, luxury goods providers, et cetera. And again, Matthew, maybe, maybe you remember this period, the rationale behind that being Treasury, and I'm sure assorted industrial interests, wanted to study the effects of these new anti-money laundering policies on these specific industries. And again, you can see the logic of that. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to cut these industries off at the knees. And so Treasury issued these specific temporary exemptions for these industries. And yet, as we know, here we are two decades later still talking about these exemptions. They are still in place. They are, they put paid to any idea these were ever going to be temporary whatsoever. Now, I don't want to say, I don't want to cast aspersions on Treasury officials by saying they did this purposely because they wanted to create these new, again, incentive structures for this illicit or suspect wealth to flow into these specific industries. But as we know, dirty money, suspect money, illicit wealth is not simply going to end in terms of the flows if the American banking sector is effectively closed off or if those new policies are implemented in the banking sector. It's going to find new areas, new industries, new routes to being kept safe, hidden, uh, laundered, and then while nonetheless being able to be controlled and used. And again, we talk more about those specific industries in a moment, if you'd like. But we have the states on the one hand, you have these specific policy exemptions on the other, and then the third primary cast of characters that I describe are, you know, it's, it's kind of a term of art that's really come into being in the last year or two, these enablers, these specific American class of professionals that are uh, overseeing, that are crafting and creating, uh, and that are then profiting from these specific financial flows. So again, I just mentioned real estate. So think of things like real estate agents or luxury goods providers or private equity and hedge fund managers. Beyond that, you also have things like accountants. You have things like escrow agents. You also have, as I argue in the book, perhaps the key class of professionals, uh, American lawyers and legal firms that as we saw most recently in the Pandora papers have really transformed into these effective one-stop shops for servicing all number of kleptocratic needs. And again, we're not talking about representation in court everybody's due equal rights under the eyes of the law but we're talking about everything else uh, you know these are the firms that set up the shell company networks these are the firms that oversee the real estate purchases or or create those introductions in order to create those uh broader financial secrecy networks they are the ones that are pushing uh you know in, in the american case against basic things like shell company transparency they're the ones that are crafting pro offshoring legislation they're the ones that are targeting investigative journalists in terms of potential threats and potential lawsuits and then doing so much of this while being cloaked behind or being uh, being att attempting to cloak behind attorney-client privilege. Okay, when I'm talking about the enablers, these are the specific classes of professionals that enjoy the exemptions from anti-money laundering regulations, or in the cases of lawyers and, and, and law firms, have never had to, in the U.S., deal with any specific due diligence requirements. Again, not just about representation in court, but when it pertains to creating these financial networks, in many ways, financial empires, for their clients, regardless of the source of their, their income. So again, we have the states, you have the policy exemptions, and then you have these specific enablers that in totality, in conjunction with one another and reinforcing one another, have created the reality that the US is now one of the primary fonts for pro-offshoring, pro-financial secrecy, and pro-kleptocracy services for any client, any figure, any regime that has any amount of, as I say, dirty money burning holes in their pockets can look to the United States of America for all of their servicing and uh, laundering needs. That's terrific. That was a really helpful summary of the factors that have contributed to the state of affairs. It is striking that, as you said in your answer, none of these really seems to have the character of a deliberate uh, or self-conscious desire to facilitate money laundering or to aid kleptocrats. But 
structural features of the system combined with perhaps an oversensitivity to concerns about regulatory costs and so forth create these loopholes that the dirty money can kind of gush through. I want to follow up with you to talk about each of these three pillars and, and maybe get a little deeper in each of them. Before we do that, though, I want to ask one more question about the focus on the United States. I entirely understand as an American myself, you're an American author, writing for principally an American audience, why it makes sense to highlight the role of the US in particular, because American citizens should be especially exercised about what their own governments are allowing to happen. The the framing of the book, though, does seem to suggest that the United States is distinctly worse than other parts of the world, and not just the traditional offshore, you know, Cayman Island, Caribbean Island kind of jurisdictions, but other jurisdictions as well. And the pillars that you identify are pretty US specific. And so I just wanted to get some clarity on this. If you compared the United States on this dimension in terms of functioning as a kind of a safe haven or provider of services or whatnot to kleptocrats, if you compared the United States to the United Kingdom, right, City of London, or France, or Dubai, or Singapore, or some of these other wealthy, financially sophisticated jurisdictions where there are also many concerns about money laundering and illicit financial flows, is your view actually that the United States is distinctly worse, or is it more that you just wanted to call attention to the fact that the United States is in fact bad, not necessarily that it creates more of a safe haven for kleptocratic money than, say, uh, the United Kingdom or Dubai? Yeah, yeah, Matthew, that's a a great question as well. I mean, certainly on the one hand, I absolutely wanted to use this framing as a way of getting especially American audiences interested in an understanding of these transformations that have taken place, obviously, in the U.S. itself. I mean, I'm sure I don't need to explain to to listeners as it pertains to American audiences, American interests. Generally, it's difficult to uh, sell American audiences in many ways, uh, uh, books as well, on broader transnational phenomenon or on specific developments, again, in places like Singapore or or Dubai or or even the United Kingdom, for that matter. So certainly there is an element of highlighting the fact of, uh, of the American transformation for American audiences and doing so in as pointed of a fashion as I did in order to bring those new audiences aboard. But beyond that, as I, I argue in the book, and I would certainly, you know, I'm, I'm happy to stand by right now. Let me phrase it this way. The dynamics we have seen take place in the United States over the past, in this instance, 30 years or so, while they do have particular American dimensions, again, in terms of the federal structure, specific policy exemptions, and obviously the enabling class and uh, lack of due diligence therein. These are comparable, similar, in many ways, parallel dynamics we have seen take place in this broader global, as we say, race to the bottom. Similar dynamics that we have seen take place in the UKs of the world, or for that matter, some of the UK overseas territories, Caymans, Jersey, uh, uh, British Virgin Islands, or the traditional offshore havens uh, of yore. Again, the Switzerland's, the, the, the Panama's, the South Pacific jurisdictions. This has been a global transnational race to the bottom to attract all of this capital emerging from post-Soviet, post-communist, post-colonial spaces, to say nothing of the kind of wealth that is involved in, you know, for this case, tax evasion or tax minimization schemes out of uh, developed and Western jurisdictions. Again, this is a at a 10,000 foot level, the exact same dynamic we have seen take place in other financial secrecy and offshoring jurisdictions over the past uh, a few decades, many of which have followed, if not identical, then similar pathways in terms of exemptions, in terms of uh, a wide range of allowances for these enabling classes. I don't think anybody's going to argue that the provisions and uh, services that, in this case, British lawyers and barristers and law firms, they, they are precisely as deleterious and damaging as those of American lawyers and law firms. And frankly, this is a, um, 
I know the Tax Justice Network has done phenomenal work in this space in terms of categorizing and cataloging each different national structure and national uh, you know, series of policy slates and exemptions, and certainly would be far more fertile area for research moving forward, especially for some of these emergent offshore havens, places like Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, uh, and, and elsewhere as well. As I argue in the book, certainly there are specific developments in the United States, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to scale. The United States is simply larger than all of these other traditional offshore havens. You know, one of the stats that I use in the book, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the World Bank estimated a few years ago, the U.S. creates more corporate vehicles than the next 41 tax havens combined. Again, think of the United States, 50 states, tribal nations, territories, et cetera, et cetera. It is simply one of scale rather than specific policy provisions per se. We see shell company provisions, we see anonymous trust provisions, we see lawyers, real estate agents, uh, private investment vehicle managers elsewhere providing similar services. But in the US, it is at a scale that no other country, no other jurisdiction, no other nation state can match. Similar dynamics, again, elsewhere to the Canada's or the Australia's or the UK's of the world, but is one of scale right here in the United States. I, I will say, and I've, I've had this conversation with British colleagues elsewhere, I'm more than happy to be proven wrong on this. And I'm not going to go to my grave claiming that the United States is, at the end of the day, the greatest single offshore haven in terms of the actual provisions. But if you look at the scope of those provisions and then the scale beyond that, I'm perfectly happy to stand by that claim. Great. Uh, that's really helpful. I want to now circle back to the three pillars you discussed. And I want to talk a little bit about what the United States can or should do to address this problem. So your second and third pillars both had to, I'll get to the states in a moment, I hope we have time for it, but both had to do, I think, with the, the scope of application for U.S. anti-money laundering laws. I mean, there's a sense in which you could have, if you wanted to, I know three is a nice number, you could have kind of consolidated pillars two and three, because exactly. they're both about, you know, we have, the United States has the Bank Secrecy Act, which has a variety of so-called AML, anti-money laundering requirements built into it. They're principally know your customer rules, transactional due diligence rules, and suspicious transaction reporting requirements, where you have to uh, tip all, you have to send a report basically to the United States Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network if there's something in a transaction that looks fishy, although you're not necessarily prohibited from proceeding with it if you don't uh, have reason to believe it's actually criminal. Okay, so I feel like as just an, an observer of these debates, I'm, I, this is not my area of direct research, but I feel like there's a little bit of a tension in the kinds of uh, criticisms that I've seen of the existing architecture. It goes something like this. There's one line of criticism that says, the current Bank Secrecy Act, as it applies to financial institutions, is not a terribly well-designed anti-money laundering system. It's incredibly burdensome and cumbersome for the financial institutions, but actually just the requirements of filing suspicious transaction reports don't do much. The BuzzFeed reporting of, that preceded the Pandora Papers, I can never remember what all these things are, some, some other papers. The big story there, the FinCEN files, that's what they called yeah. it. I knew it had to be alliterative. The FinCEN files uh, led to a lot of reporting, possibly, I don't remember if you wrote on this or not, but a lot of the thrust of that reporting was kind of like, look how ineffective the suspicious activity reporting requirement, it turns out to be in practice. Look at all these financial institutions that continue to handle all this money that turned out to be at least suspicious and in some cases dirty after they'd filed the SARs with the Treasury Department. Okay. But then there's another line of criticism that says, basically, let's expand 
the BSA's rules to apply to a whole bunch of other entities. Let's apply them to real estate. Let's apply them to lawyers. Let's apply them to accountants. And you see where I'm going with this. Like, if we don't think that that's a terribly effective system to begin with, if we don't think it's been that effective in suppressing money laundering and illicit finance in the traditional financial sector, and maybe that's an exaggeration, that might be one thing we want to get at, why put so much emphasis on the expansion of these existing requirements? It reminds me a little bit of the old joke, you know, the food at this place is terrible. Yes, in such small portions, right? Gosh, these requirements are really ineffective. Yes, they don't apply to nearly enough entities. So, so what about that? Yeah, no, Matt, that's also a great question in of itself. And yeah, the, the, the FinCEN files, I, I don't think got nearly as much attention as, as they deserve to. I, I, I don't mention them as much in the book because it was relatively late toward the publishing process itself. But these were a leak of, and I don't have the data in front of me, but a, a leak of millions of documents pertaining, again, this is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is the Department of Treasury's prime, uh, primary anti-money laundering monitoring body. This is the body that receives every single one of these suspicious activity reports from, in this case, American banking sector or, or, or a number of other targeted sectors that have not received any exemptions yet. And what we know is that these groups like FinCEN, those staffers that are actually there have been absolutely inundated. There's been an absolute deluge of suspicious activity reports that aren't acted on, that are ignored, that never see the light of day, or that take years and years to finally get to. And then beyond that, if there's any penalties, again, that comes years and years afterward. And the way that it's currently structured in the US, these banks simply have to file the suspicious activity report and can then continue working with that client, that figure, if they would like to. Certainly they can turn them away. That is their prerogative. We've certainly seen instances of that. But as it is legally structured, they simply have to file the suspicious activity report and then wait for the governmental response. What the, the FinCEN files highlighted to my mind so effectively, and, and I will say it, it may worth be having some of the authors of the, of the FinCEN files on for, for a future episode. To my mind, what it highlighted was the clear need for funding, financing, and resourcing for this body in and of itself. And again, there are plenty who are arguing against it that will require far greater reform in and of itself. But this is a similar dynamic we have seen with groups, groups, uh, agencies like the Internal Revenue System, the IRS itself. This decrease in funding, this hemorrhaging of talent, this uh, dropping off of efficacy is a similar dynamic that we have seen play out with the IRS over the past decade. It is mirrored, it is paralleled what we have seen with FinCEN in and of itself. And again, that's probably a conversation for another time. But nobody's arguing, as far as I can tell, that the IRS should simply be abolished in and of itself or should be tossed out in a brand new structure of oversight and investigation should be implemented. It's one of enforcement. It is one of funding. This question may be a bit above my pay grade. I don't confess to be an expert on the internal mechanisms and funding apparatus of FinCEN itself. But as I understand it, certainly as I've digested it over the past year in conversations with others, obviously putting the book together, my sense is it's simply the actual structure of the apparatus is there. Yes, there are time and resource elements for those on the filing side that it takes to actually fill out and file one of these suspicious activity reports. Yes, there are still plenty of questions about actual penalties, penalizing, which fits in the broader conversation about potential white collar criminal activity and the prosecutions and the you know, potential jailing of certain figures, et cetera, et cetera. It's part of a far broader discourse around, again, the criminalizing of certain white collar activity. But what I have seen, what I have gathered from my conversations, and this is a conversation that will continue I'm sure for years to come, is that it is one of resourcing, of financing, that the personnel are there in terms of those that are actually dedicated, the structures are there. It's simply been something that has been drained dry, undercut time and again, 
And as we've already seen from the Biden administration, obviously the proposed budget, a significant increase, as I remember, a 50% increase in proposed FinCEN funding, which is, again, in addition to significant funding increase for the IRS as well. I'm happy to have conversations with others about more reforms. Certainly we'll see, Matthew, maybe we'll talk about this in a moment, all of the proposed rulemaking we've seen in just the past few days about real estate, about beneficial ownership. Obviously, this has been a week, we're recording now in the second week of December, a week unlike, frankly, any other in at least recent American history. And I would not at all be surprised if we do see increased emphasis on whether it is funding and resourcing for FinCEN or even beyond that, a wholesale reformation. I mean, this is such a fluid, dynamic time that we're speaking in. This might be a disappointing response to your question, but certainly this is going to be a conversation moving forward for years to come in terms of how FinCEN can, should operate, and beyond that, how these SAR filing requirements should be extended to other industries, to other jurisdictions, and to uh, other areas that enjoy these current exemptions and loopholes. Yeah, that's really helpful. For what it's worth, I'm inclined to agree with you. But I do think, uh, so I, th- I think the suspicious activity reporting requirements are, are very important and, and ought to be expanded to other sectors. I do think that it's a challenging, even with substantially increased resources, to expect that FinCEN is actually going to be reviewing these things in a proactive manner. And, and for the people I've talked to, that's not really the way the system operates already, nor is it really intended to operate that way. It's more like FinCEN maintains a database. And if there's already an active investigation of a person or a company, they might go to FinCEN and say, hey, do you have any suspicious activity reports on this guy or this firm? But I think someone once did the calculation that it, with the existing number of suspicious activity reports, if FinCEN spent 15 minutes reviewing every single SAR that came in, it would, you know, even at double the staffing level, levels, it would take years and years to go through the existing backlog. And I will say to, to that point, Matthew, obviously the United States is not the only jurisdiction dealing with these questions of SAR filing, of enforcement, of examination. I was involved in the release of a paper with uh, Chatham House just a few days ago, looking specifically at the UK as a jurisdiction, obviously following similar dynamics. And obviously those have in- increased and expanded SAR requirements for other jurisdictions, for other industries outside of banking itself. And it has experienced an ex- uh, the same phenomenon of slow walking investigations of uh, overextended staffing of a lack of resourcing so that is all of which is to say this is a dynamic that we do see in other uh, jurisdictions elsewhere and that it might be worth examining again those specific lessons from those specific jurisdictions as we begin moving forward with reforming fincen or increasing the, the financing and resourcing or expanding those filing requirements uh, uh for others and that, that again is a far broader part of a far broader discussion discourse around the overall balkanized approach to examining transnational financial flows investigating those uh between uh, between nation states as well Yeah, I'd love to pick up on that in just a moment and talk about what kinds of reforms looking forward might make the system more effective overall. I do want to explore a little bit more just my own parochial interest, given where I teach, in the role of lawyers and law firms, which is something that you mentioned, uh, especially with respect to that third pillar. There are many enablers who are not lawyers and many lawyers who are not enablers, but boy, the intersection of those two sets is larger than uh, people in my line of work would like it to be. And then the question, so how do we address that concern? And one thing that you did acknowledge when talking about the potential expansion of Bank Secrecy Act requirements or other anti-money laundering requirements to to lawyers and law firms is a theme that, as you know, the organized legal profession, the American Bar Association, others have really emphasized, which is that there is traditionally a duty of loyalty and a duty of confidentiality that attorneys owe to their clients. There's a a related but separate set of evidentiary privileges that would apply in legal proceedings, right? Attorney-client privilege and so forth. But what 
not all lawyers, certainly, but what the, the American Bar Association and others will say is, look, let's take suspicious activity reporting requirements. The way those requirements work with banks is the bank needs to file a report with the United States government detailing a client's transaction or proposed transaction that looks fishy without telling the client that this is going to happen. If you were to apply such rules to lawyers, the argument continues. And if you know my writing on this, I don't, I don't agree with this, but I want to put the argument in its best light because I do think it's worth taking seriously. The argument goes, look, imposing those requirements on lawyers, when a client retains an attorney, um, certainly in litigation, but also in transactional work, you want the client to be able to say, here's my entire financial situation. Here's everything that I've been thinking about doing and so on and so forth. And if the attorney is put under an obligation to then, without the client's knowledge, to tattle to the federal government, everything the client's doing, that, according to the ABA and others, would pose a significant threat to the traditional duties of loyalty and confidentiality that lawyers are owed to their clients. So I guess I have a two-part question here. First, obviously, I think you and I both kind of disagree with that as a reason not to apply some set of rules to lawyers. But first, do you think, based on your research or your general thinking about this, that that's a legitimate concern that's worth taking seriously, or do you think that's mostly a smokescreen? And second, if there is something to that concern, how do you think our laws should address it? Are there ways that the traditional anti-money laundering rules ought to be modified when we're talking about application to lawyers who owe these traditional duties to their clients or not? What to do about this? Or do we just say, look, this is outweighed by other factors and, and we're sorry? Like, what? how to handle this? Yeah, look, again, Matthew, that's a, um, and certainly one of the questions that I think is coming to the fore more and more frequently in terms of discussion, certainly, again, as I mentioned earlier, the Pandora Papers from just a uh, two months ago now in October of 2021, shining a very clear light on the role and the growth and expansion of the kinds of services American lawyers and law firms now provide for these in this case, kleptocratic clients. You know, I, I'm familiar with the argument you just laid out. I think you're exactly right. I think you and I are, are of a similar opinion that that doesn't necessarily hold quite as much water as its advocates uh, uh, would like to think. You can see the logic and the extension of those, uh, again, attorney-client uh, privileges and protections to these other elements of services they provide. And you can see why there is a logical framing that any threat to any potential element of attorney-client privilege within this construct, as they described it, is a threat to attorney-client privilege in totality. I don't buy it. I disagree with it. These are the provisions of services that go far beyond the scope and scale of legal protection, of legal representation. Again, we are talking about these American lawyers and law firms uh, not just representing their clients in court, not holding their best interest in front of uh, uh, regarding the rule of law and putting the best defense forward. Again, I'm certainly not arguing that any of that should be impinged whatsoever. I'm talking specifically about the increased potpourri and range of services that these lawyers and law firms now provide for their clients. You know, to take just, just one specific example, uh, one of the case studies in the book follows, and Matthew, I know you've uh, spoken about this on podcasts in the past, and I will say it's thanks to the, thanks to the Kickback podcast that I connected with Robert Manzanares uh, initially uh, to describe the case study of Theodore Obiang, the uh, son of the longest standing dictator in the world in Equatorial Guinea, who brought uh, uh, millions and millions of dollars in uh, at least questionable, if not illicit wealth into the United States to be plowed into a whole range of, of industries using an entire range of financial secrecy vehicles. Obviously, the first iteration of that was the Riggs Bank scandal in the late 90s and early 2000s, in which Obiang and his entire family 
uh, cycled hundreds of millions of dollars through Riggs Bank that ended up collapsing the bank in and of itself in the mid 2000s. But after the bank's collapse, Obiang turned to an American lawyer, in this case, a number of American lawyers, because he needed their services, not for legal representation, but he needed their services to access the specific nodes, the specific industries, the specific elements of the American financial sector. And as we know, thanks to the incredible work of Senator Carl Levin and his colleagues at the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, remarkable, remarkable detailed uh, uh, investigations, documentation of how Obiang, as well as a number of other kleptocratic figures uh, who came into the US to launder their money, how these networks actually operate. And I would highly, highly recommend that listeners uh, read through those, those investigations, those documents. What we know is that it was these specific American lawyers that he worked with, that again, a detail in the book, that were the ones who were setting up the shell companies for him, who were overseeing the purchases of multi-million dollar mansions, who were overseeing and organizing the purchase of a private jet, who were organizing the contacts with escrow agents, who were, as we know, with one case and study in particular, using their uh, legal, the, the law firm trust accounts at a number of banks right here in the U.S. to skirt around, again, the bare minimum anti-money laundering regulations within the American banking sector itself, knowingly, cognizantly doing this over and over and over again, and then pulling their money out of that specific bank before they caught on and getting it into another American bank and hopping between different American banks uh, uh, to, again, skirt around these anti-money laundering regulations, doing so, again, perfectly legally. Uh, at least in terms of any potential prosecutions that followed afterward, using those loopholes, using those exemptions, using this entire new range of services that these lawyers and law firms now provide far beyond what that initial relationship was supposed to be in terms of defense in front of the rule of law and holding their client's best interests in front of the rule of law. Now they provide all range of services, of tools, of access points to the American financial sector with the explicit in this case, in the Obian case, uh, explicit reason and rationale of moving around and avoiding American anti-money laundering regulations. And again, that's only one case study that we know about. There's no reason to think that that is a unique case study in and of itself. Um, I will say, Matthew, I know you asked what kind of should be done next. I will point listeners to the recent filing of the so-called Enablers Act in Congress. Um, it is, uh, it's an acronym whose name I can never remember, but it is shortened to, to enablers. So hats off to the creative minds in Congress that specifically addresses the role of, again, a range of these American enabling figures, trust providers, shell company operators, uh, accountants, real estate agents, as well as lawyers that has more details on potential approaches uh, therein. I will also highlight the recent strategy on countering corruption from the White House that came out again in the first week of December that highlights the specific role of lawyers in this broader class of enabling professionals. All of which is to say, we do have increased interest around focus on and potential legislative and regulatory solutions for this issue of lawyers as this, as I described, the kind of first among equals class of American enablers. Again, we're in a very fluid, flexible time. I don't know what the final legislation or regulatory framework will look like, but do not be surprised if Matthew, you and I reconvene in a few years time and we have taken significant uh, movement forward in this, uh, in this space in particular. One can only hope. And one of the, I, no, actually one of the things that is interesting about the way 
uh, the book is presented in the way I've heard you talk about these issues in other contexts is that um, it's not entirely hopeless, which is interesting because many people who write and work in this area, you know, you respect the work and it's and it's important and it's and it's revealing and so forth. But it kind of leaves you feeling that that it's hopeless, that the forces of darkness are just too powerful and there's nothing that can be done. Um, but as you just suggested, there's been movement on this issue in the United States just within the last couple of years. And the movement is slow and halting and insufficient and so forth. I mean, even you alluded earlier in our conversation to the Patriot Act, another act from the USA Patriot Act stood yeah. for some long thing I don't yeah. even remember, putting, again, putting to, uh, to one side for purposes of this conversation, the very important issues to which you alluded about personal, individual civil, civil liberties issues with respect to the anti-money laundering provisions of the act, that was a big step forward. And as you mentioned, your pillars two and three, it left a whole bunch of stuff out, these temporary exemptions that have become de facto permanent. But boy, before that, there was kind of nothing. And now there's something. And like that, that that's good. And I want to continue there for a moment. But if you don't mind, I want to be parochial for just a little bit longer. So um, one of my parochial interests is uh, the legal profession. The other is universities. And that's not the main focus of uh, the book, though they're mentioned. People don't typically, to the best of my knowledge, launder money through universities. But attention to universities and also other institutions like think tanks, for example, has become a somewhat higher profile issue in the last few years. There are some journalists and civil society activists who have been increasingly calling attention to a, a cluster of issues that are not all the same, but there's the issue of the children of these extremely wealthy kleptocrats or oligarchs going to in the fanciest schools in the world with the tuition perhaps being paid for with, with money that's not entirely clean or not clean at all. There's the issue of donations, uh, often coming with naming rights. Some people have referred to this, the critics have referred to this in kind of aggressive terms as reputation laundering. Um, and some have suggested that universities should, should turn away the money. This creates these sorts of issues. So I, again, I think that Universities, I have a parochial interest in them. I think they're important. I think they're not as important in the grand scheme of things as lawyers, law firms, accountants, corporate formation agents, traditional banks, and so forth. But I'm kind of curious, based on the research that you've done into kleptocracy and illicit financial flows, your awareness of these debates over donations and children attending schools and so forth, where do you think universities fit into all this? What should universities be doing on this issue, if anything? Do they have a responsibility to take more action on this issue than they have been? What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a, uh, again, a great question, Matthew. You know, one of the things we're, I mean, we've spent all this conversation so far talking about the laundering of money in and of itself. And again, I know I, I preface this conversation by saying, using the term kleptocracy to describe the phenomenon of transnational money laundering in and of itself, obviously the transformation of illicit or dirty money into clean, legitimate assets. But there is another element that I highlight in the book. And as, as you rightly mentioned, Matthew, has seen kind of increasing salience in the past few years in terms of research and kind of just public pronouncements themselves. And that is the laundering... Uh, you know, the term you just use, laundering of reputations themselves of these specific kleptocratic figures or organizations or networks, or in some cases, regimes in and of themselves. So we're not talking about the actual laundering of fine. I mean, I, I don't quite know. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody laundering money through universities somewhere. I don't quite know how that would act in and of itself. What we are talking about, what I describe in the book, is the usage of significant donations to, in the broader scheme, nonprofits in the U.S. as well as in other Western jurisdictions, but in this particular case, universities themselves. 
And this follows a model that certainly predates modern kleptocracy. It is as simple as being a deep pocketed donor and using some of those donations, some of that philanthropy uh, uh, to the universities for uh, naming rights, or maybe it's simply as access to the kinds of policymaking circles or elite circles affiliated with that university, or maybe even beyond that, simply gaining access for your child or your children to that university. Certainly, we've seen that, a number of case studies uh, on that as well. But what we have seen in, in recent years, and I, I want to um, point listeners to a wonderful paper that I was involved in research on uh, earlier this year from the National Endowment for Democracy, from another a number of other just phenomenal scholars, Alex Cooley, John Heathershaw, and a number of others, looking specifically at U.S. and U.K. universities as new sources of Again, the term of art being reputation laundering, that is to say the acceptance of and the lack of due diligence around these prominent uh, significant donations from, uh, in this case, uh, foreign nationals, especially out of places like the post-Soviet region or regarding kleptocratic regimes in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, South America, Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera. The willing and free acceptance of those funds and the transformation of those funds into not only infrastructural investment in the school itself or placement in the endowment itself. But beyond that, the willingness to highlight, to praise, and to transform those kleptocratic figures themselves into not oligarchic, pro-regime fonts of questionable or suspect wealth, but obviously philanthropists, moguls, tycoons, et cetera, et cetera. One of the case studies that is highlighted in that report, maybe maybe the most prominent case study is that of not an American university, but a, but a Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. And the acceptance, this was, this was back in the mid 2010s, the acceptance of a significant multi-million pound gift from a Ukrainian, as they describe him, benefactor named Dmitry Fertosh for the bankrolling of uh, Cambridge's Ukrainian studies program. And this is not casting any aspersions on the talent that is contained within the Ukrainian studies program. Frankly, I would like to see Every university have a Ukrainian studies program. The problem is that when Cambridge announced this gift, when it publicized this gift, and you can still see this material on Cambridge's website, it describes him as a, a, you know, a generous philanthropist who is willingly donating to, uh, you know, out, out of his benefit action, the creation of, again, this knowledge generation center. Um, as we know, in the years since that donation, he has been uh, charged in the United States on bribery-related charges awaiting extradition. He was uh, involved in the uh, 20, circa 2019-2020 political interference efforts uh, right here in the United States, and he was recently sanctioned by the Ukrainian government itself, which is, I suppose, a bit ironic that the bankroller, the benefactor of the Ukrainian studies program is sanctioned by the Ukrainian government. Anyways, that's one case study that we examined in the National Endowment for democracy paper that's described there among a whole range of, uh, of others. I, I will say, again, that that paper itself has far more details about this phenomenon. One of the recommendations being simply increased due diligence and questions around and transparency around the gift committees and the acceptance of these, these funds. More explicit, more transparent. No, nobody's saying that they have to be cut off uh, whatsoever. It, it's a matter of transparency and due diligence. That extends to other nonprofits, including things like think tanks, especially in, in Washington, those that are close to policymaking apparatus, those that are generating the kinds of policies implemented by this administration and future administrations. Just out of curiosity, I haven't read the paper about Firtash's donation to Cambridge, and I'll check it out. Are, is his name still on the center in any meaningful way? Did they take it off when he was uh, criminally charged and sanctioned or, or not? Uh, unfortunately, I, the, the program itself is not named after him, but you ah. can still see on the Cambridge University Ukrainian Studies website the announcement, the pronouncement, this, again, effective whitewashing of this now sanctioned, now wanted 
uh, now nearly extradited figure as, again, this generous uh, benefactor. Um, and, and again, this is just one case that we've seen it with the, the Gaddafi family. Certainly we've seen it with other, um, uh, you know, in this case, Russian oligarchs and donations to uh, a whole range of, of nonprofits. I was involved in another research project with uh, David Zaccone, um, a, a wonderful academic researcher at George Washington, looking at the range of oligarchs involved in political interference operations in the U.S. and their donations to American nonprofits, not just, not just universities themselves, but also think tanks, cultural centers, museums, and we found upwards of 400 and his memory serves 70 million dollars right nearly a half billion dollars in donations alone to american nonprofits and those are the only ones that we know about you know there's still a whole range of lack of transparency in this sector but yes it's very much one of these kind of emergent fields of, of research in the broader scope of kleptocracy i don't want to spend too much more time on universities because i did want to get back to some of the broader issues but i suppose one question what you just said naturally invites uh is yes okay universities should do more due diligence but you know, what's the standard of proof, shall we say? I mean, no, no university should you know, create the Theodorian Obiang Center for African Studies, right? Pretty easy to follow. But some of these cases that I've read about, and maybe the Furtash case was like this at the moment of the donation as compared to now. All right, this rich person from, let's say, a former Soviet country has come and wants to give us all this money. They haven't been convicted of anything. They made a lot of money in the 1990s in, I don't know, the natural resources sector or heavy manufacturing. And like, there's a lot of smoke, but like, there are no charges. There's nothing. We're a university. We're not a law enforcement agency. There's only so much we can do. You said no one's saying all this should be cut off. I'm not sure that's completely true. I've encountered people in the civil society world who are very aggressive about this. Who like, don't take any of this, this tainted money. But like, okay, I imagine, let's say a university development officer is listening to our conversation. They're like, yes, transparency, yes, due diligence. But what, what, what's the ethical thing to do when I've got this situation where I could substantially benefit my university, I could create this new center and contribute to knowledge. The money is... I don't know. Like, there's nothing. There's no smoking gun. There's a lot of circumstantial, like, this person made money in a place at a time when there was a lot of corruption. Do I have to walk away from that? Maybe you'd say this, the admissions officer might say the same thing. So there's this child of this president in this country, and there haven't been any criminal charges. The t- country doesn't get a great score. The Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. You know, they're paying for all the tuition without taking a law. Like, what, what do I, you see what I'm getting at? Like, no, what, what do you yeah. do? Yeah, no, look, Matthew, I'm, I'm uh, maybe embarrassingly, I'm going to punt on maybe that question in terms of, in terms of technical elements. I, I do, I just pulled up the, the National Endowment for Democracy paper here again, because I'm not going to claim that this is my only area of focus. I've certainly been working in this space. I perhaps fortunately haven't encountered those who have a blanket ban on any of those donations. I haven't had conversations with those elsewhere. I suppose I'm not surprised that, that they do exist because that is certainly one way to effectively clamp down on this phenomenon. But I'll, I'll just I'll just pull on some of these um, recommendations that we have in the paper itself, just to highlight, uh, again, that it's not simply closing down each and every one of these avenues of potential bankrolling, of potential funding. I mean, again, this is by no means a foreign phenomenon or non-American phenomenon. As, as you may have seen just the other day, Matthew, is the um, uh, the Metropolitan Museum here in New York is removing the name of the Sackler Gallery. Obviously, the Sackler is being connected to well, a, a range of concerning developments in terms of the pharmaceutical sector here in the U.S. That is now being rectified, and those names are being removed. A similar parallel phenomenon to what we've seen with the, with the Furtosh case. Those concerns, those considerations, I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how much willingness, how much space are these individual gift officers, these individual uh, gift commissioners willing to grant to these figures? 
simply being fully cognizant of the risks that they are taking. One of the recommendations of the papers is simply contacting those regional studies professionals. And in this case, Ukrainian or post-Soviet studies could be Chinese studies, could be you know Central African studies to get a beat on who these individuals are, where they made their funds from. There, I don't need to tell you, universities are an incredible, if not the primary source of knowledge generation, knowledge creation, and obviously even beyond that, regional studies. There is a remarkable uh, saturation of knowledge that is available to these uh, gift committees, to these gift commissioners themselves. I'll just say, the, to, to quote from the paper's conclusion itself, quote, the core problem here appears to be one of non-disclosure, the lack of transparency about reporting gifts and absence of institutionalized accountability about the process of scrutinizing them. So I'll, I'll end the quote there. So terrific. Um, I mean, again, because I have a parochial interest this, we could go on for longer. We, we're, we have only limited time left. So I wanted to circle back to some broader questions. So coming back to the this process that you described where the United States became uh, a haven for illicit funds and so many U.S. actors became either intentional or unintentional facilitators of the, this movement of illicit money by kleptocrats and others. The three pillars that you describe and the process that you describe seems to be a pretty diffuse and long-term set of phenomena, right? There's the decentralization, there are these exemptions or exclusions that have lasted for decades. It didn't seem to be particular to any administration or period of time. You said there wasn't any key point and so forth. Many people believe, for example, that some administrations are substantially better on this issue than others. And in particular, there were a lot of concerns when former President Donald Trump was elected and throughout his presidency, that because of his uh, personal integrity or lack thereof, uh, because of his particular orientation worldview, that we would see substantial worsening on this dimension. But there's also a view, and this might be consistent with the way you framed it in terms of these three pillars, that at least on this issue, yeah, the policy, presidents come, presidents go. But on this issue, it's really like deep structural stuff that's not really, you can't really attribute to any particular administration. So I'm not sure if, that, that, if I've sharpened that into a clear question, but maybe I just want to ask you, what difference did the Trump administration make and what difference does the Biden administration make to progress on this issue? Sure. So I, I suppose the broader answer to your question, Matthew, is you're exactly right. This was not one administration. This was not one political party. This was not one specific policy that you could point to under, you know, for this instance, you know, the, the Reagan administration, or the Clinton administration, et cetera, that everything flowed from there, that initial point of kind of, you know, original sin that we could go back to and rectify everything. This was a cross-partisan, bipartisan affair that traditionally Democratic states like Delaware, traditionally Republican states like Wyoming uh, have participated in and have accelerated to say nothing of the cross-partisan elements of some of these industries and professional classes that, that, that we described. There was no one, one president or one political figure that allowed this to develop. And every administration has had its strengths. Every administration has had its weaknesses. Uh, again, think of the Patriot Act under the Bush administration. Think of the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative under the Obama administration. Even think of the expansion of certain sanctions policies targeting some of these specific kleptocratic figures and networks under the Trump administration. What makes the Trump presidency and Donald Trump as a singular American political figure so unique and what has allowed his presidency to increase the salience of, as we described, kleptocracy or transnational money laundering and the kind of broader threats both to domestic 
uh, democracy as well as national security, wealth inequality, et cetera, et cetera, is that Trump is, former President Trump is, as I describe him in the book, the first world, not just America, but world global leader to emerge from, as I write, one of these pro-kleptocracy industries or one of these industries that has profited uh, uh, over and again from some of these specific exemptions that I mentioned earlier, that being American real estate, in particular, luxury American real estate. And this is a conversation for, for, for another time. But as we know, and as I have detailed in the uh, the book, former President Trump, Trump's rise, obviously to political prominence, emanated from his role as a luxury real estate developer in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, in parallel with, in tandem with the growth of that sector as a source for and font of laundering and anonymity services. We know in the lead up to his 2016 nomination that according to the best estimates, uh, $1.5 billion, and that's before adjusting for inflation, uh, at least uh, was made from clients matching money laundering profiles. Again, these are those who are buying in cash, buying in bulk, buying with uh, bearer shares, buying anonymously, et cetera, et cetera, that seemed to have accelerated, especially through the 2000s and the early 2010s. Um, and then beyond that, we know what he did as president. We know that one of the first things he did as president was specifically try to gut the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is, I, I write, has been kind of the, the beating heart of the broader American counter uh, international corruption or transnational corruption policies. We know certainly that he vetoed the Corporate Transparency Act earlier this year that would have banned anonymous shell companies. We know that there was significant lethargy in a number of these other policy spaces. But beyond that, we know that he was one of the figures to emerge from this broader pro-kleptocracy industrial base and beyond that we have all number of questions about foreign financing anonymous financing beyond that and the effect of american policy we'll have only a small small vantage and look into the role that these sales the role that these property purchases and then beyond that the role that this questionable or potentially illicit wealth played in undercutting or in shifting or in directing uh, American policy at large. I know I, I just mentioned Mr. Furtash a moment ago, one of these kind of seminal case studies in modern oligarchy, and certainly in the post-Soviet space, intimately involved in the 2019-2020 uh, interference efforts and obviously President Trump's first impeachment scandal. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of realities that made the topic of kleptocracy so incredibly salient in the United States of America. And one of the reasons, one of the primary propellants for why the Biden administration has been so, especially in the last few weeks, gung-ho, frankly, about making significant headway in this space. Again, I was talking with British colleagues just uh, just earlier this week about this remarkable kind of renaissance of American leadership in this space. And I said, frankly, in many ways, we do have former President Trump to thank having lived through four years of his presidency, and who knows, may, there, there may be four more years in the very near future as well, to uh, reify and to highlight and to elevate these issues as they actually operate, as they exist. Um, I frankly don't know if we would have seen anywhere near the momentum that we've seen in just the past few weeks without a, um, a presidency like that of former President Donald Trump. There is a certain irony, if it does turn out to be correct, that Donald Trump was the catalyst for finally getting substantial movement on some of these issues. I mean, after all, the Corporate Transparency Act, which did pass over President Trump's veto, uh, those proposals had been kicking around for 15 years. And I wouldn't say, I think I don't think it was President Trump's presidency that was what pushed it over the edge, but the timing is certainly interesting. And you're right, the Biden administration has decided to make this issue front and center and connecting it to the, the efforts to promote democracy and resist authoritarianism more generally. That does, uh, that does raise a question that I had. I know we're running out of time, but this is something I've, I've, I've been struggling with. So one thing someone might be concerned about is that 
given that it's such a long-term process to address these issues and that the concerns emerged over the course of many decades with administrations and legislatures of both political parties, one might be concerned that it's important that the fight against kleptocracy, the fight against illicit finance and so forth is or remains bipartisan or at least nonpartisan in a way that many issues don't. We've seen this dynamic, certainly in American politics, and I suspect our international listeners may be familiar with this, versions of this in their own countries, when an issue gets turned into a partisan issue, it can actually be very difficult to make headway on it. One of the nice things actually about anti-money laundering, for example, or anti-foreign kleptocracy, is that you know, despite all the extreme political polarization in the United States, this has actually been one of the areas where you do get a fair amount of cooperation, collaboration. The Corporate Transparency Act had broad support from the right side of the political spectrum, for example. One thing one might worry is that insofar as Donald Trump gets more strongly associated with like the kleptocrats and the anti-kleptocracy political movement gets understood as a kind of anti-Trump movement, might that actually make it harder to make this progress? Actually, in your book, if I recall correctly, I don't have your book sitting in front of me, but it's in my office. If I recall correctly, in your last chapter, actually, you have a lot of very positive things to say, not only about President Biden, uh, but Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, other people who are very much associated with the left end of the political spectrum, Warren and Sanders more so even than Biden. Not that you should pull your punches, especially as a journalist who's setting out to like tell the truth and to call people's attention to things. But like, am I wrong to be worried about this? Do you think that there is a concern about me trying to preserve a kind of nonpartisan anti-corruption, anti-kleptocracy agenda? And is there a concern that that could be um, compromised yeah. if the agenda gets too bound up in a kind of anti-Trump rhetoric or framing? Yeah, no, Matthew, you're you're not wrong at all. I, I will say just, just regarding the last chapter of the book, you're exactly right. I do have praiseworthy comments for Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, especially for placing some of these issues front and uh and, and center, especially especially Senator Sanders for framing this in a broader kind of national security American foreign policy context. I do want to highlight that I do uh note and uh elevate the, the again this bipartisan cross-partisan element because you, you you're exactly right. Even though we have seen such rank and concerning polarization and increasing polarization in the United States political framework over the past few years, and I, I don't know when that will end, the uh, space in which anti-money laundering policy is discussed and then beyond that implemented still remains a remarkable bipartisan, cross-partisan space in and of itself. You have you know, national security uh, you know, uh, hawks like Senator Tom Cotton out of Arkansas. You have those, again, uh, on, on the left end of the spectrum, like Senators Sanders and Warren that have been over and again able to come together to craft policy, to push policy. You see this most especially in the Helsinki Commission in the uh, United States Congress and the recent counter-kleptocracy caucus, which is composed of equal number of Republicans and Democrats that have been launching bill after bill to patch up, again, the anti-money laundering uh, loopholes or beyond that, simply to reinforce the anti-money laundering counter kleptocracy playbook in and of itself it has been a remarkable testament to the frankly continuation of bipartisan comedy in this rank polarized time uh but you are absolutely correct that there are concerns about increasing partisan rancor even in this space and the damage that would do to these efforts moving forward i mean again just 
as we're as we're recording this here in early mid mid December, we have seen the Biden administration place these issues front and center. The brand new countering corruption strategy document, the uh, proposed rulemaking from the Treasury Department, and then beyond that, Secretary Janet Yellen's comments just this month saying, "I, I love this quote, and I, I I'll read it really quickly because I, I think this does sum up my book so well. I don't think she's read it, but it is a it's a wonderful encapsulation of the argument." She said, "Quote: There's a good argument that right now the best place to hide and launder ill-gotten gains is actually the United States." And I'll end the quote there. I mean, obviously, I would never argue against that, but there is a concern that within this elevation from a specifically Democratic administration, there may be some inevitable uh, partisan blowback, simply you know, stemming not from any policy proposals themselves, but from the just kind of the broader. A political apparatus as it currently exists, opposition for opposition's sake, undercutting for undercutting's sake, and taking the uh, opposite tack or opposite uh, position simply by dint of being, again, in opposition to the administration itself. It is a needle that legislators, policymakers, activists will have to continue to thread moving forward. Certainly, I don't need to uh, describe former President Trump's role and relationship with the Republican Party. And it is a difficult dance that we have seen continue over the past few years that will certainly have to continue moving forward because without bipartisan support, without that bipartisan basis of focus, comedy, and frankly, respect, there is not going to be the kind of headway that we need in this space. There is not going to be the kind of policy implementation that we need. I would certainly love for a future Republican administration to say the exact same things that Secretary Yellen, or for that matter, President Biden, uh, have, have said on this. Um, I don't know that we'll necessarily see that from a future President Trump, but that doesn't mean that Trump and Trumpism is not it has to be the only future for the Republican Party. There are certainly avenues, there are areas, and thankfully right now we still have bipartisan elements of support in this space, and I would certainly think it's in the United States and frankly, the global interest for that bipartisan support to continue moving forward. I absolutely hope that you're right. Uh, I want to ask you one more question, if you'll indulge me. I know we've talked for longer than I had promised. <laughs> We're getting a little bit over time, but I did want to circle back, if I could, to our earlier conversation about thinking ahead, looking forward, imagining new possibilities. And I wanted to get your thinking, and this may go beyond the scope of the book, although some of this might, might be contained in the book, about what we ought to do or ought to strive for over, let's say, the next 10 to 15 years in this space. So on, building on your pillars, I would assume that you would like... Uh, an expansion of federal regulatory requirements to constrain states, that you would like the expansion of Bank Secrecy Act and other anti-money laundering rules to cover those uh, entities that are currently exempted. Um, that was your pillar two and pillar three. Putting that to one side, if we want to do a little bit more like what they call, sometimes call big picture, blue sky thinking, or whatever, outside the box, I don't know, whatever corporate cliche you prefer to use, beyond expanding the coverage of the BSA and using federal regulations to rein in the states, if you were to outline the big picture anti-kleptocracy agenda for the United States government in the next 10 to 15 years, we don't have time for you to cover everything, but like pick your favorite one or two or maybe maximum three things that you would really like to see that you think would make a big difference beyond just kind of the expansion 
of the existing AML rules to uh, new entities? Yeah, certainly. That's a great question, Matt. You know, I've been doing book promotion and book editing and just trying to stay on top of the news out of the White House over the past few days. I haven't had much time to think back and do some of this blue sky thinking, but I, I will say certainly one of the things off the top of my head, which we haven't seen uh, as of yet, certainly earlier this year, the Corporate Transparency Act passing, obviously the recent proposed rulemaking about what entities will actually be involved in that. Um, that's still going to remain private, accessible only to federal officials and those um, in, in partner countries. Uh, other jurisdictions, obviously the UK being most prominent, have public registries themselves. That comes with all issues of enforcement and oversight. We don't need to get into the details of that. But I do think it's a at least relative matter of time before we see a public ownership registry in the US similar to that. Because the beauty of the public ownership registry is that journalists like myself, civil society activists elsewhere, investigators elsewhere, can access those documents. I mean, it is effectively open sourcing, not that that necessarily needs to be the purpose of it, but open sourcing these uh, networks, these ownership structures to those. I mean, to echo what we were talking about earlier, there is in this space very often enforcement, resourcing, personnel issues. They can only look at so many things and so many times once those are open to the public, that would be, um, you know, it brings that many more eyeballs uh, in there as well. And it doesn't have to be, again, just the uh, corporate formations as they currently exist, things like LLCs, obviously this you know, generic shell companies, but can, and I would argue should be extended to other wealth protection vehicles themselves. I'm talking about things like trusts, obviously, especially out of states like South Dakota, which we saw in the Pandora Papers just a few months ago. South Dakota has exploded into this brand new supernova of anonymous, uh, very often illicit wealth tied to any range of rights abusers, environmental destroyers, regimes themselves that ha would have never been, would never, never seen the light of day without the Pandora Papers themselves. One of the emergent fields of study within this is not just shell companies uh, and corporate formations or trust themselves, but two other elements, things, uh, foundations themselves. And I haven't written anything on this. I'm certainly in the research phase on this. States like New Hampshire have now created the kind of financial uh, architecture that effectively transforms foundations from not the Again, nonprofit uh, supporting or funding mechanisms, but into effective uh, shell companies or trusts in any other name. That is to say, it has the anonymous protections without the kind of general nonprofit uh, propellant for that. We also have things like family offices, which uh, the author Chuck Collins has done wonderful work on. He had a recent book called The Wealth Hoarders that came out uh, recently looking specifically at the role of American family offices as shepherds, as managers of, again, anonymous wealth without any kind of uh, elements of of due diligence without any other kind of elements of transparency therein. Um, again, these are the kinds of emergent financial vehicles that, as we see, increasing regulatory oversight for shell companies, for perhaps even trusts. There are going to be new fields, new vehicles, new typologies that emerge that try to attract some of that capital looking elsewhere. And then there's also digital assets. This is uh, again, a conversation for another time. Well, one of the things we saw in the recent White House counter for um, a strategy document for counter corruption was a focus on digital assets. It didn't go into much detail. It didn't go into uh, certainly any kinds of broader policy prescriptions. But Matthew, I don't need to tell you this explosion in uh, a crypto, the explosion in NFTs, the explosion, all these brand new digital based vehicles for asset ownership, for asset transformation um, without, again, any basic due diligence requirements uh, therein. And I, I, I am in many ways, it's, it's 
an extension of the kind of uh, anonymity and secrecy provisions we've already seen flourish in the American, or global for that matter, art sector and auction house sector. In many ways, it's an extension of, especially for things like NFTs, which are in effect digital artwork. This is a, a an emergent field, an exploding field that there hasn't been nearly enough research into writing on examination of or potential policy prescriptions therein. So these might not be quite as blue sky as other folks are discussing or examining. It's certainly what's been on my mind recently. And as we see this incredible headway from the White House, uh, I do think it's uh, maybe just a matter of time that we see similar examination, similar discussion around these new, again, emergent vehicles themselves. I, I, I will say that it is a, um, Matthew, I'm grateful to be talking to you at the end of 2021 because this really has been a year, at least in the US, unlike anything we've seen, at least since the days of the Patriot Act. I don't know when it's gonna end. And I, I, I know we mentioned my optimism earlier. I'm have to be, happy to be known for that optimism. I'm sure it's misplaced more often than not, but I am uh, remarkably excited about where things are, are, are going, given how far we've already come in just the past few months alone. I love to end on a note of optimism with these uh, these interviews. As you know, the study of corruption, money laundering can often be uh, pretty pretty depressing. And so I appreciate the optimism and more importantly, the, uh, I appreciate the, the insights and uh, all the, the knowledge you brought to the table. Oh, I'm sorry, do you wanna add one more thing? Well, I, I just, one, one quick note again, uh, to get back to the book itself. Toward the end of the book, uh, I cite a wonderful paper examining how the US itself emerged from not the kind of current relatively recent morass that it, that it, that it encapsulates in terms of, of corruption, both international and domestic, but the Gilded Age itself, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And Matthew, I just wanted to express my gratitude for you and the podcast for examining that period and those kinds of policies that allowed the U.S. to emerge from that Gilded Age uh, itself. Again, the focus on high-level prosecutions, the focus on reform, resourcing, and um, I just wanted to highlight the fact that that paper is cited in my book and to express some, some gratitude for um, being able to put that together and making it available to non-academics like myself to examine. I appreciate the, the plug for the paper. Uh, my co-author, uh, Tino Quayer, and I are, are most grateful for it. And, you know, who knows, maybe if... Uh, out of the first Gilded Age emerged the progressive era and all its reforms, maybe out of the what some people are calling a second Gilded Age, we'll see another wave of uh, progressive style uh, reforms in the in the old school uh, uh, sense of progressive. Uh, but anyway, thank you again. Uh, I know we, we talked longer than originally intended. This is one of our longer episodes, but I think that's just a testament to the, the richness and the provocative nature of the work that you've done uh, most prominently, though certainly not exclusively in your book, American Kleptocracy, uh, which I would very much encourage our uh, listeners to check out. But Casey, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today. It's been great to talk to you. And maybe depending on how things develop, we can have you back on in a year or two hence and, and see whether things have gone as, as well as you and I both hope they will. We'll see what next year has in store, but Matthew absolutely would be honored to return uh, anytime. Thanks so much for this. It's been, uh, it's been great. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. If you're interested to learn more about the FinCEN files and investigative journalism in general, we recommend you check out the episodes with Frederick Obermeyer and Will Fitzgibbon. Like I mentioned in the beginning, this is it for this year. We will be back in January. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is hosted by Matthew Stevenson, Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass, and me, Niels Kubis. Music support from Kaihan Gorkan, and we appreciate for the first time editing help by Amy Assad. 
We see you again next year and until then we hope you have a great holiday season, a great start to the new year. May it be more corruption free.